Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Evie Strauss, and thank you for listening. Humans have always been explorers. Our era is not different. Thomas Marshburn is both a doctor of medicine and a U.S. astronaut. And he kindly joins us today to talk about his experiences in the space program. He had two flight experiences, one in the shuttle in 2009 and an extended one in the space station from December 2012 through May 2013. Dr. Marshburn, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. I'm old enough to remember the Mercury program. Back then, I can remember a science teacher had us make a list of the things that we thought space travelers would need to know, questions that they would need to ask and then solve. One of the bigger questions is what it would be like to live without gravity. I remember my teacher said that somehow NASA needs to figure out a way to make artificial gravity, Star Trek style. What was it like to float? to not feel a blanket at night. How did it affect you and, and the other astronauts, but how did it affect you folks both psychologically and physically? Floating around in the weightlessness is a great delight. And I think that would be a change from what we potentially expected would, would be back in the early Mercury days. First of all, your bodily functions seemed to work just fine. They were worried that we wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom or swallow even. All that seems to work just fine. Your body does a great job of adapting. So knowing that, knowing that you're not being harmed, is certainly with any short duration flight, it is just a joy. It's like a dream. As you can imagine, just pushing off from one wall and floating to another, everything becomes fun, including brushing your teeth, getting dressed, and day to day. What I tell people is that if the hard things are easy and the easy things are hard. So you can push around a big 200-pound experiment or, or box or something with just your fingertip, but it's hard to find a place to put your pencil because you, you'll probably lose it unless you affix it somewhere. It's that kind of combination that makes it every, every minute in space is problem-solving, but overall it's absolute joy. Is there any work being done, and maybe I'm watching too much science fiction, but is there any work being done on developing some form of artificial gravity, especially as we are looking at missions to Mars quite far away a long time without gravity? That's always been of interest, and there are groups that get together to uh, look at the costs and the benefits. There is the scientific community has a lot of interest in artificial gravity, particularly variable gravity, because we could solve a lot of our other physiological problems. I didn't mention for long duration flight with weightlessness, you might get bone and muscle loss. There's a re relatively new phenomenon in which we believe maybe we have increased cranial pressure and that's affecting our eyesight even permanently. So we could solve a lot of those with artificial gravity. The engineering problems though are huge and what you would lose with artificial gravity is what I just mentioned, the, one of the absolute delights of space flight. It also just turns out that you increase your risk of trauma. <laughs> So from a, from, it'd be more like living in a submarine at that point when things can fall on your head or you could fall down some steps or something. So there are medical pros and cons of artificial gravity as well. I heard that the intracranial pressure may actually cause a flattening of the retina. That's exactly, exactly it, yes. Uh, what we are seeing is flattening of the retina. Sometimes retinal folds are created. We've seen before uh, a couple of little hemorrhagic spots, cotton wool spots, etc. Not on everyone, but it seems to be an issue for older males, males over the age of 50. But we're going to fly more women. We're going to find out more. And so we've, we've already tried some mitigations that we are pretty easy to solve, relatively easy to solve, and seeing if that helps. But we really don't know the underlying mechanism yet. Does it reach the point where it changes your vision? 
Yeah, it happened to me, as a matter of fact, about two months into the mission, and I suddenly became more presbyopic. I, I wasn't before and became slightly presbyopic, which was, it worked out just fine for me. I had contacts and I just chose not to wear them. I didn't didn't need them. And certainly I needed to be able to read a laptop or read a procedure. But there was about a couple of days time when I suddenly realized I couldn't read the procedure very easily if I had my contacts in. So the way we, the, the easy solution is to send up with a crew member lots of forms of correction, different different prescriptions for one person so they can, can match them as they go throughout their flight. Not an ideal solution, but that's it seems to work well. You know, and just following on the, the medical reality of that you're in a different environment without the gravity, but it would seem that most common diseases that we have down here, the common cold, infectious diseases, it would not be a problem up there because unless a new astronaut brought it up to you, you're not going to be exposed to any of the common bugs, so to speak. So are there certain types of ailments that you see up there? Do people have stomach problems? Is there any, anything else that is causing somewhat of a predictable medical concern? Well, yeah, there's a whole, fortunately, relatively short litany of things that can go wrong. First of all, when you go up there, about three out of five astronauts are going to feel sick to their stomach as their nervous vestibular system adapts to weightlessness. And you can expect somebody anywhere from just vomiting a lot or just kind of feeling a little bit queasy. Uh, my personal experience was I got a slight headache, a little queasy, but only for a couple of hours. And after that, I was, I was eating and, and feeling good. So I was one of the fortunate ones. We can't predict it, but what we can do is treat it. And promethazine seems to work really well. We're trying out some other things. Ondansetron uh, has been tried as well. But promethazine is the workhorse for getting people through just that short 24-hour period as they adapt. Back pain is a bit of an issue. You know, as the spine elongates, and we believe it's a stretching of the musculature as, as the body adapts, the musculoskeletal system uh, adapts. And that can be really severe and rare, rarely in individuals, but it can be a bother to a lot. And we have the standard treatment for that. And it goes away pretty quickly. Headaches can be a bit of an issue, and that can happen periodically throughout a flight. That's a fairly common thing. Don't know what's causing those. They don't have migraineous symptoms. Could be related to fatigue. Could be related to the pretty pretty high levels of carbon dioxide that are on spaceships. Those are three standard things. The most commonly used meds out of a med kit, since I don't know all of the things that have happened up there. But most commonly used meds are meds that help people sleep, uh, non-steroidals, and those kinds of things. There's a whole list of things that happen periodically that we need to be prepared for to include toothaches, skin reactions. We do see an increase uh, rate compared to the ground on allergic reactions on the skin, dermatologic reactions, uh, which could turn into a skin infection. Eye injuries and spaces hard on the eyes, just foreign bodies getting in there. And on the hands, we use our hands like our feet to translate around. So fortunately, very mild injuries to the hands, but we need to be prepared in case we get a crush injury to a hand. Um, that only happened once, one dislocated finger that was relocated by the physician on board. So we, we have to be ready for those kind of things as they come up. You speak about the skin. Is the air humid or is it dry? This can cause a lot of problems here on Earth. If the skin's too dry, people's skin becomes, well, dry, and they can, they can get infections. Where do they keep the humidity level? It's about 40%. So low compared to life in Houston, that's for sure. And about 70, 72, 74 degrees is the temperature. So slightly cool. There's a pretty good air movement, which they have to have to 
keep uh, all the avionics cool, but also to blow away the carbon dioxide. With, without gravity-induced buoyancy, you can, you can get a cloud of carbon dioxide around your head. So you need all that mass movement of air to prevent that. So it's a little bit cool. At night, I'd wear a light jacket, but during the day, I'd feel just great and get a little, little hot when I was exercising, need a little fan on the face. And in case people are curious, it smells great up there. They do a good job of keeping it clean. It did not smell like a locker room. I thought it would. People actually, interestingly, don't smell as bad up there as as they seem to on the ground. We, you know, we don't have running water. We don't take showers. We do wipe downs. So I'm not quite sure why that is. I think it's because we don't get in our clothes. They don't have as much contact with their skin. Our clothes float around us. So that's probably one of the reasons why. And you don't wear shoes. Every time I've seen pictures of astronauts, they're all wearing socks, so you don't sweat on your feet as well. Right. You know, we do wear shoes only on the treadmill and on the cycle ergometer because we're trying to recreate some gravity-like uh, things when we exercise just for our bones and muscles and our, our proprioceptive system. All the rest of the time, you're right. Uh, shoes are a real pain because your toes kind of become prehensile. Your legs are useful because they can hold you down, but you got to wrap your toes around a handrail, wedge it into a little corner, and shoes just make that harder. Yeah. So yeah, you get really good at being a uh, four-limbed traveling creature up there. I saw in one of the YouTubes that featured you that you showed getting into the sleeping bag. And you had the armholes. You could sleep either with your hands floating or some people like to have their hands against their body. It raises the question of the circadian rhythm. You go in and out of it, sunrise, sunset, what, every 45 minutes or something like that. So is it completely artificial on the inside? Do they turn the lights off at night? Do you know it's nighttime? How do you get a, a sense of the time of the day? The major zeitgeist or trigger for the sense of the time of the day is communication with the ground. They set the schedule. We're on GMT schedule. And I didn't know this before I flew, but I realized as we did try to sleep shift that my body began to uh, kind of experience uh, wakefulness like the day is starting when I heard the communication pick up both on the Russian side and the U.S. side. Otherwise, you're right. There is no indication. You can't look out the window. You might see blazing sunrise. You might see a sunset all at the wrong time of your your personal cycle. So we do turn off the lights, but there's still plenty of light to navigate around with just from LEDs and LCD screens from all around the laboratory. Our crew quarters, we can get black as we need for sleep, but that's totally dependent on me turning off the light up there. Do all of you sleep at the same time or does somebody stay up all night? Uh, mission control remains on guard. We tried that, having split shifts, but it's hard to sleep when, you're, when your buddy's working. Everybody wants to keep working, so, so we don't do that anymore. And, and by the same token, I mean, do you guys all eat together or do you eat independently? Do you have a little dinner? I know you don't have a dining room per se, but do you all sit around and not sit, I guess, float around and have a dinner? We do. And the reason, and to include uh, getting our Russian colleagues, and dinner is the time when we most often all get together uh, purely for the social aspects of it. It's just fun. And you have a chance to talk, to talk about the difficulties you had during the day or, or just to share experiences. Because we all are, we are all off usually working our own experiment. We're not often uh, working side to side on something, but occasionally we are. But uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to communicate and share food. This must be the best dinner assembly that one could have. In your diet, do they give you a lot of vitamins? And the reason I ask is because here on Earth, we obviously talk about sunlight and vitamin D. You're not exposed to the sun at all up there. And if you're up there for a few months, unless you take a vitamin pill, your vitamin D is going to go down. This question has been asked of me if I knew it, how NASA handles it. So uh, do you all take a multivitamin? 
You're absolutely right. You nailed it. The only thing that comes up vitamin-wise in our food packages is a little Ziploc filled with vitamin D, and we each have a prescription of how much we need to take because you're right. Our vitamin D levels do drop, and that's obviously important for our bone health as well. So that is the only thing, the only supplement. Everything else is just in the variety of the food. One of the other things that has always intrigued me is that though all of you are quite professional, you are still people, and you're going to be in a relatively small place, although I'm finding out that it's physically more it's more spacious than many people might think it is. But do they get all of you together beforehand? Do you have, shall we say, some sort of introduction to group therapy to understand each other? I, I say this because I would imagine that tensions do arise. You're all humans and you're all professionals and things are going to happen. How, how is that addressed? So it's not specifically addressed in a particular gathering or a class, but it does come out in the training. We train together. It's some fairly harsh training as well. Winter survival in Russian with Russian colleagues, water survival in Russia in the Soyuz where you're bobbing around. And I've had a core temperature up to 104 doing that. Uh, potential for getting seasick. So plenty of stressful circumstances for us to get together and get to know each other, including our Russian colleagues. We do have a team, uh, one psychiatrist, one psychologist who sits down with us individually, and that's a U.S. specialist that sits down with us and discusses some of these issues, but usually is saying, what's bothering you? What can we help with, et cetera? They want to make sure that the individual is happy where they are in their life and their home life, and they're all set up to leave the earth for six months and they have enough of a support team. When it comes to the interaction, we pick commanders based on experience, and the commander is there to, to help. They have resources if they need them, but usually it's the commander that comes in to help resolve any, any conflict. I personally have never lost the luster and the amazement with the space program. Do you think, however, that the general population has somewhat removed themselves, become not as involved with the space program, that they don't understand the scientific work that you're doing and the scientific spin-offs that evolve from the space program? Do you feel that's happening? I think that happened after the uh, <laughs> after any big event. You know, one thing happened: the second moon landing was not nearly as well uh, followed as the first moon landing. That's just the nature of, of people. What I find is that, based on my experience going out, because we do a lot of talks with schools and Congress and individuals, is that Americans love their space program. It's just not something that a politician uses a stance on that to get elected or not get elected. That's understandable. It's less than one half of 1% of the federal budget. But individuals love their space program and they're very excited about it. I do not see that translated up all the way up through Congress. And we spend a lot of time talking to staffers up there too, to educate them in some cases, but to give them a status on what's going on. So it doesn't bother me, although obviously we wish there was a huge national push just like there was during the Apollo program. But we, we understand that that's, a lot of smart people have to figure out whether we can afford to do that kind of a thing. I have many friends who are surgeons, and they speak repeatedly about the number of materials that they use in surgery that have been indeed spinoffs because NASA needed to develop a material for a particular reason, and surgeons were able to use it and uh, with quite some success. So, And the list of these, these spinoffs are just ongoing, and it's Awesome. Yep, you're absolutely right. And I struggle, and I think astronauts struggle with going through the litany of spinoffs with the general audience and not boring them to death, but also kind of communicating 
the profound elevation of the base, our technical base in this nation that has occurred because of the space program. Basically, if you, if you fund smart people to solve really difficult problems, then you're going to get wonderful things that happen, and the space program is a great example of that. I tell people that the cell phone is in part related to the work that NASA did because you needed smaller and smaller and more powerful computers to take with you because you just couldn't lift that much weight up there, and the spinoffs is my little iPhone in many yep. ways. Oh, absolutely. And that could keep going. <laughs> I don't know how long your podcast is, but there's things we interact with every day. What sort of things are some big spinoffs? Uh, rechargeable batteries. Doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but we work with them all the day. That's a NASA spinoff. The first defibrillator, actually, in the medical world was that. One thing I was particularly involved with, and I loved it, I was working with fluid flows in space on a particular experiment. Turns out they were looking at capillary action. They were interested in how can we drive fluid through pipes and in tanks without using valves and motors because you got that capillary force you could use. It turns out you can. It also turns out that the picoliter, really tiny volumes of fluid on the earth, act just like fluids in weightlessness. And there are actually some patents coming out now to develop better lab-on-a-chip devices so they can do much more complex laboratory analysis with tiny, tiny volumes of blood and take even more devices that are in a laboratory and shrink them down to something that's handheld. Now, patents are coming out for HIV detection and that you can take out to remote areas in Africa, for instance. Nobody could have predicted that. This is just incredible. Another thing was we were really interested to the extent that we could use ultrasound in space to diagnose medical problems, fractures, et cetera, other things, eyes, particularly eye problems. The interest that NASA had in that actually wrapped back. There are some techniques now that can be used in the FAST exam to detect pneumothorax, tension pneumo. So you can actually look with the ultrasound real quick instead of just plunging the 14 gauge between the ribs. There are other ways that ultrasound is being used in the field that came out of NASA's interest in development of protocols for diagnosing with ultrasound in ways that the Crown would say, well, we got a CAT scanner, we got an X-ray machine, what do we need that for? Well, it turns out a lot of places in the world, including a space station, don't have those things. And the ultrasound expanded use on that. An enormous amount of work has been done on materials. Also in cell biology, it turns out that many bacteria become much more virulent in space. Something about weightlessness, the changes in the cytoskeleton have some kind of effect. We don't understand it. But it turns out, yeah, they were able to develop because they could get a population of salmonella virus so virulent, they were able to rapidly develop. They brought it back to the ground, rapidly develop a vaccine, and a vaccine against salmonella is, has come out as a result of that. At least one, and there's more on the way because it's an active area of research, drugs to combat osteoporosis have come directly from the space program. We as astronauts are, you can think of it as accelerated aging when it comes to muscle and bone atrophy. What happens to our bodies in six months in space happens to a person, even, even a small female. It would take decades to happen to them. So we can do a lot of research very quickly and, and understanding osteoporosis and weightlessness-induced atrophy. My father was an industrial engineer, and when he began to watch the space program, his hope was that he is helping to develop a rounder ball bearing. Because down here, regardless of how round they make it, it still is under the influence of gravity, and up there it would be more of a perfect sphere. 
I, I'm fascinated by this stuff. You, what you guys did was tremendous. Yeah, it is very interesting. Now, the problem comes uh, one of economics to be able to afford that ball bearing. But you're absolutely right. One thing that people don't talk about much either is the vacuum outside the, the space station. As good or much better than any vacuum on Earth. And you can actually grow even better crystals in such a vacuum and in wastefulness. Crystal growth is a huge area of research. There's actually a pipeline now that comes. We bring up raw material for crystals, which we grow in space and then bring right back down again through multiple generations and been able to, to figure out um, the uh, crystalline structure of certain proteins to understand how they, you know, what their uh, structure is, therefore understand their function. And Deshane's muscular dystrophy, there has been a treatment that's come out for that still under development based on space flight work that helped them understand that, that protein. We only have a minute or two left, but I, I need to close with a particularly more, shall we say, personal question. I've heard that many of the astronauts return to Earth with an incredible and perhaps almost a surreal sense of where they've been. What are your thoughts about that, sir? Well, you do. My wife would tell you it took me six months to really adapt being back on Earth. We do tend to personally work through what just happened to us and adapting back to the day-to-day -day work of life here when we've had a chance to see the Earth from space. The stars look about the same, but the Earth from space is life-changing in many ways. To see the Earth as it really looks without borders, without names for places, and to see how, how fragile the hold that humans have on the Earth is, is just very, very tenuous. And so you fall in love with the Earth. You get a huge appreciation for how fragile we are as, as a human race. And I think that does change people's viewpoint completely. I, I also would expect that there's a phenomenal sense that by stepping outside of our biosphere, we begin to look at it with a wider lens. And by using that wider lens, which is not restricted by the Earth's environment, we learn more about us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well stated. I thank you very much, sir. I, uh, we could do this for hours, and maybe in the future we can do some follow-ups on more specific issues. Do you think you're ever going to go into space again, or you don't know? I hope so. I'm in line. I don't know how long the line is. <laughs> so we spend about 20% of our time training to go back up again so we don't lose some of our skills. But other than that, I'm, I'm helping other people fly in space, and that's a wonderful job, too. Sounds interesting. Sounds promising. Thank you for your work. Tom Marshburn is a doctor of medicine and also a U.S. astronaut, and he spent now a fair number of minutes this morning very graciously talking to us a lot of specifics about what it's like to be in space. Sir, thank you again. Thank you very much. Enjoy talking to you.